So, um, so yesterday I was discussing the tensions that I, I see in the liturgical discussions within the Catholic Church. And I kind of gave a general overview of these tensions that I see, and then I focused on the tensions that I see from the traditionalist side. This time I want to I focus on the tensions that I see from uh, the conservative side. Say it. And I think that I've, I've adequately defined what I mean by traditional and conservative, um, and also what I don't mean by it. And I think I've also given um, a plethora of distinctions in the last video. So if you have not seen that video, please go back and watch it. But all right, just to cut to the chase, I'm going to discuss the tensions that I see from the conservative side of these liturgical discussions. So most of the time, I see the conservative side bringing up a magisterial document as really as as a way to show how the church's authority has been defined, particularly over the last 200 years, as regards what the pope um, or an ecumenical council can do in regard to the liturgy. And as I stated last time, an extreme, what I, what I would consider kind of an, an extreme take here would be to say that uh, the Pope, or you know, an ecumenical council, but it would be even more extreme to say the Pope alone could abrogate any right that he wants to, any liturgical right that he desires within the Catholic Church. Now, as I said last time, there's a difference between what the Pope can do and what he should do, right? It, it could very well be a sin for him to abrogate the the Roman right, or or especially like the Byzantine right, or another one of the Eastern rites. It very possibly could be morally sinful for him to do that, but it would not mean that he, um, just because it's sinful, doesn't mean that he has technically the authority to do it. And I think that that particular distinction, what I, what I just said, that conservatives bring up is is one of the one of the core tenets of the conservative side that traditionalists disagree with. Okay, uh, it seems that many of the traditionalists will say that uh, what the Pope should do limits what the Pope can do. All right, I think that's a fair way to put it. Okay, and then just like I said last time, I'm getting on the highway here, so we're going to have a little bit of a break in the video. Okay, so I think that that does precisely buy the tension on the conservative side. The fact that the distinction between what uh, the Pope can do and what he should do, and, and does what the Pope should do limit what he can do. You know, can the Pope order somebody to do something sinful? Well, no. I mean, everybody agrees on that. Uh, the, pope, the Pope cannot give an obedience that would require the individual to, to sin or to, to espouse heresy or, or schism, even. You know, he, he, could not, he could not do that. But, you know, then you get the question of, I was thinking about this after I recorded the last video, um, that a rebuttal could be made to where where I, I made the point that um, the tension I see on the traditionalist side is that is that the tension that I see on the traditionalist side is that um, the Pope could you know for instance abrogate the Latin Mass and that would be a sin on his part personally you know p potentially but it it would still be a valid thing for him to to do it would still be within his power and his authority to do it although. He, um, although it would be a sin for him personally. Now, an objection that I could I could see 
um, like a traditionalist making to that claim of mine is is precisely the the question of heresy or schism. You know what what is so different about the situation where the Pope um, asks the laity to believe heresy or to commit sin? You know that that could certainly be said to be a sin on the Pope's part, definitely. But could not could, could one not make wait? What am I trying to say here? Could could one make the same distinction um, and say, well, in the case of the Pope asking us to sin, it's a sin for him personally, but it's still valid for him to do that. Uh, and I think my, my response, uh, my reply, would be you know, that the, the subject, or, or I guess I say the, the object of obedience that the Pope would be giving, the object of obedience, in the example of the abrogation of the traditional Latin Mass, would be that the traditional Latin Mass cannot be abrogated. That's the object. Or, or, sorry, the, the object would be that the traditional Latin Mass can be abrogated. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. That the traditional Latin Mass can be abrogated, and the abrogation of it. Okay, that abrogation, I don't see as a sin, objectively. Okay, but it could be a sin of prudence on the Pope's part, um, or a sin of, like, authority on his part. Particularly seeing as how how many individuals throughout the world are uh, very much attached to the traditional Latin Mass. And it could be a, skin, a, a sin of scandal on his part, because, you know, to, to abrogate a uh, long-standing custom of ours, of, of well over, I would argue, well over a thousand years, could be scandalous, or, or you know, along the lines of a minor censure, scandalous to pious ears, right? Because then we have the problem of, well, you know, what, what is the value of our ecclesial, ecclesial traditions, ecclesiastical traditions? You know, they can be changed, but under what circumstances should they be changed? Do, do we need to, to figure that out better for the sake of continuity, for the sake of uh, the church having continuity with its past and not being an institution of rupture? Okay, I think that's kind of the distinction that I would make between the situation of the Pope espousing heresy or, or asking us to sin, and the situation of him abrogating a long-standing diastical custom. Okay. So going back to the, the conservative side, what are these uh, tensions that I see? Um, I think it is mainly the question of, um, of ethics, of, of what the Pope should do, and also, and also having a liturgy that is, or that is logically coherent with Catholic philosophy, um, particularly Catholic philosophy about aesthetics or, or beauty. It, it appears to me, and maybe this is just because I've been reading a lot of traditionalist writings lately, but, but this, was, this was an observation of mine even before uh, I began uh, really diving into traditionalist literature. And, and that is the, the, the problems of how the Novus Ordo, as it is generally practiced in my diocese, in other places in, in the United States that I've been to, and even you know, in in Rome, in the Vatican, the way that it is often celebrated appears to me to be aesthetically incoherent with Catholic ascetical philosophy and our philosophy of realism, metaphysical realism. And I, I've done a number of videos on this. You can go back; they were some of the first videos I ever did, or, or, or podcasts I ever did, um, on metaphysical realism. I, I did, I think, two or three episodes on ascetics, um, on beauty. Uh, and you can go back and you can listen to those for kind of a, a, maybe a fuller, uh, fleshed out, a more fleshed out understanding of what I mean. 
with this. But but I do think uh, much of what is much of the way that the Novus Ordo is practiced today is aesthetically incoherent with uh, our 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 previous tradition of philosophy. And 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 I, I would just say it's uh, if you were to look at it as an argument, um, as like a, a philosophical argument in the realm of aesthetics, of of an argument for beauty, the argument that the Catholic Church makes is rooted in metaphysical realism, and and in order for that argument to be logically coherent, or, or I guess I should say, people that are working with that argument and working it with it in a way that is logically coherent would not would not do things like promote a versus populum stance or ad populum stance of the priests during liturgy. Okay, I think that that example is uh, paramount to what I'm, I'm trying to get at here. Because it, when the priest faces the people, when, when, when everybody is not facing the same direction, so when, when uh, those in the sanctuary are facing a different direction than those in the uh, pews, in the nave of the church, it, it really breaks, it, it's, it's, it's a, almost like a fallacy in our, in our argument for ascetics as Catholics in our argument for beauty. It's, it's incoherent. When, when we do things like build churches that look like spaceships um, or have crucifixes that are like just barely resemble the, the reality of what happened. You know, I, I, was, I was watching a, an EWTN news um, article recently on the, the German schism um, and they were interviewing Pope Francis. I think it was the Associated Press was interviewing Pope Francis. And throughout this news segment, they were showing a bunch of German chapels, or maybe they were even churches, uh, where you know they had draped a, um, a, a gay pride flag over the altar, which in itself is is sacrilegious. And then you know what what was also incredibly striking to me was um, the crucifixes in in each of these in each of these videos. The the one was well, the, I guess I should say they were both utterly formless. The, the one looked like it was a crucifix that had been burned and that it looked like Jesus was almost a mummy on the crucifix. Um, and it, it was like, looked like it was made out of stone. It was very rigid, very, um, like you, you couldn't really tell features. Um, it looked like Jesus had hollowed out eyes, uh, black hollowed out eyes. And it, it just completely, completely is antithetical to Catholic theology and Catholic philosophy, something like that. Um, and, and, and what it springs from is the idea that that symbolism is just a construct of our own mind. That symbolism is, is only there to make a point um, to us about, about something, and, and all that it has to do with is the mind. Um, you know, if, if you go about and you think like that about beauty, about art, you are not espousing a Catholic philosophy. You are espousing, at root, a philosophy of nominalism. If you think that, that art um, or beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that is precisely a, a nominalist phrase. A Catholic truly rooted in Catholic theology and thus Catholic philosophy could never say something like that. that that's, that's, um, to, to, to do so would create a, a very serious contradiction within one's own paradigm, one's own philosophical paradigm, because of, of what we believe about the, the natures of Christ, um, everything that was, was put forth by uh, the first seven councils on exactly what Christ is, what his nature is, what, what his nature is not, 
it's all rooted in a realist metaphysics. And this, this blossoms in the scholasticism of the Middle Ages. And one of the logical consequences of that sort of a philosophy, if it is logically coherent, is that beauty means something. It, it, is, it is real. Symbols are real. They're not just a construct of the human mind that we use so that we can categorize uh, different, different ideas that we have. Or it, it's not just a, a, an enfleshment of our own minds. No, no. Symbolism is not, you know, if I'm the artist and I'm creating a sculpture, yes, in one sense, the sculpture is a construct of my own mind. You know, I am its, I am its creator. But in the same instance, it reflects something real. Take the, the Pietà, for instance, uh, the, the famous sculpture by, I believe it was Michelangelo, um, that now sits in St. Peter's Basilica, of Our Lady holding Jesus after he had died um, and had been taken down from the cross. That sculpture is not simply a construct of Michelangelo's mind. It is that, for sure, for sure. But it is not simply that. It is a reflection of a reality that had occurred and, you know, really is, a, um, is an eternal moment in a very real way. The, the death of God on the cross was an, a, um, a time-rifting event to which, through the Mass, it is made present to us. At every present moment after, and even, I think, one could argue, um, every sacrifice of the Jews before the death of Christ, in a very real way, symbolized, in a real way, symbolized that crucifixion. This is not the symbolism of the mind. This is the symbolism of reality. This is, this, is, this, is, this is why uh, traditionalists will accuse many conservatives of modernism, of the, uh, espousing the heresy of modernism, is because they see in an acceptance and promotion of the Novus Ordo liturgy as it has um, really been, as it was crafted by, uh, in my understanding, by a committee, um, which was a novel thing in the church's history, as it was crafted, it gave so much freedom to the celebrant and to the, the laity in the pews, it gave so much freedom that it breeds chaos. Okay, now, now, I think there is something to be said that the old rubrics were, were potentially too sized. There was, it, it could be said that there was not enough freedom in those rubrics. I think that that could be an argument that's made. I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with it, um, but, but the point is, is what we got in the Novus Ordo, it, it appears, is is a mass which, which really breeds chaos. You know, it used to be told to me as a child by catechists and priests and whatnot that, that, oh, wherever you go in the world, the mass is always the same. And in one sense, yes, of course, that is true. In its, in its essence, the mass is always the same. Whether it's a traditional Latin mass, whether it's a, uh, a Novus Ordo, whether it's a Byzantine divine liturgy or a liturgy or an Ambrosian liturgy or whatever have you, it is all the same when you boil it down. Right? But, um, but there is a, a certain amount of, of, of reductionism that, that we do not want to espouse. It, it, it becomes an unhealthy extreme that, that, we, that we really don't want. I don't think that we want to, to argue like that. That, oh, well, you know, the, the liturgy, it's just uh, like, it, it's all the same anywhere. So, so basically, it's, it's the same. Uh, the Novus Ordo is the same exact thing as the traditional Latin Mass. You know, that, that assumes, that argument assumes that... Um, somehow the, the the accidents of of a liturgy are not important okay and 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 you know i, I think it ultimately it comes from the same sort of a mentality um or or philosophy that would say that our bodies are not important 
that really, really, when you boil down a human being, all that they are is their soul. And I have, I have railed in my podcast against that erroneous philosophy. Because if, if all that we are is our soul, then our bodies don't matter. And whatever we do with our bodies, it doesn't matter. It breeds this sort of Gnosticism, this, uh, like, it, it, it very easily can, like, the, the logical consequence of that kind of a view is that, well, my body doesn't matter, and so therefore I can do whatever I want with it. Um, all, that, all that matters is my soul, so I can, I can uh, have sexual relations with whomever I want with my body, because, because my body, like, you know, I, I'm doing it with good intentions, I'm doing it with, with uh, you know, whatever it might be. My, my internal disposition is good, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a disposition of malice. And so therefore, you know, I can, uh, I can lop parts of my body off because I feel like I'm a woman when actually biologically I'm a man. You know, that's another very clear logical consequence of such a view as this. Uh, when we say that, that uh, the accidents of a substance don't matter. That, that'd be kind of the philosoph philosophical way to put it. Boiling down a being to only its substance is not to look at reality. The, I think this could be said. This is kind of stretching my, my understanding of, of, of philosophy, but I think it could be said that the only pure substance is God. Even the angels, they have accidents to a certain degree, right? Um, they have an intellect. They have a, they have a will. But God doesn't, doesn't really have, he doesn't have an intellect. He doesn't have a will. Um, even, though, even though an angel is an incorporeal being, it still has accidents. An angel, I don't, I don't think, is, is pure substance. But God is. God is pure substance. God is the only thing that ever could be pure substance. And thus, to, to, um, to boil the liturgy down uh, to pure substance is to idolatrize it, I would argue. It is to make the liturgy God itself, God him, himself. And I think um, it's that of the liturgy, which is why so many now are pointing out, on the conservative side and on the traditionalist side, that the Novus Ordo liturgy is, is horizontal, particularly through the versus populum stance of the, of the priest. Okay. So yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess that's kind of where I'm at with this. These are the tensions that I see uh, from the traditionalist side to the, to the conservative side. But I'm still trying to work them all out. I'm sure that everything that I've said in these last two videos is not entirely logically coherent. All right? I'm sure I have multiple things that I'm missing, which is why I'm, I'm attempting to, uh, to foster these discussions amongst both sides and everybody in between. Is because I don't pretend to, to know everything in this, on this subject. <laughs> I know relatively nothing compared to... There are, there are many people who have dedicated virtually their entire lives to this subject. So I'm the new kid on the block. Anyway, hope this helps y'all. Please let me know in the comments below if I'm even making sense in all this. And, and, and again, view this video in contrast to the previous one. I want you guys to feel the tensions that I feel between these two sides. I want you to feel the good arguments that are being given on both sides. Not so that you choose a side, but so that you attempt to place yourself in between these and have them both crucify you. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what I, what I got to say. All right.